Judges 6 is where we will find our place today. But the story is told of a man who was coming to a life-changing decision and he was desperately seeking God's will. So one night he prayed. He said, Lord, I'm going to open my Bible. My eyes are going to be closed and whatever verse my finger lands on, I know that that will be your will. So he was going to play a little game of what you might call Bible roulette. So the man did just that. He closed his eyes, opened his Bible. His finger came down on one verse. It came down on Matthew chapter 27 and verse 5, which read this. Judas went out and hanged himself. So the man, when he read that, he was shocked. He recoiled, and he said, that, hmm, that, that can't be God's will for me today. Uh, so let's try this again. He closed his eyes. Uh, shut his Bible, opened it again, peered down into the Scriptures, and his finger had landed on Luke chapter 10 and verse 37, which read this, Go and do likewise. <laughs> well, the man was getting rather confused at this point, so he was going to try it a third time. thought the third time would be the charm. So he shut his Bible, closed his eyes, opened it up again, looked down, and his finger was stuck on John 13 and verse 27, which says, What you do, do quickly. <laughs> so needless to say, that fellow tried a game of setting out a fleece, and it did not work. And perhaps I would submit to you today that the greatest power that God has endowed mankind with is this gift called free will. The power to choose is ultimately the most determining factor in how our lives turn out. Did you ever read Robert Foss' famous poem, The Road Not Taken? I know that we studied this when I was in high school. But the poem is intended to be a metaphor for life. And as you read it, you discover that the speaker is standing in the woods considering a fork in the road. He looks at two paths, and both of them are equally worn and hold much promise. But at that moment, the traveler must make a choice. And the tone of the poem seems to be rather ambiguous. Is the narrator sad or glad of his decision and the result that it has brought? So that poem goes like this. I shall be telling this with a great sigh. Somewhere, ages and ages hence, two roads diverge in a wood. And I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Now Jesus spoke of two roads, did He not? He spoke of the broad road that leads uh, to destruction. And then He talked about the narrow road, the narrow way that leads into life. And few there are that find it. Maybe that's what Mr. Frost had in mind when he penned that poem. But I think about with a great uh, New York Yankees catcher, Yogi Berra. He said, uh, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> so... Who you are today is the sum of the thousands of choices that you have made over your lifetime. And as the saying goes, the choices you make end up making you. And we've all been there. We've stood at that crossroads agonizing over which path to take, afraid that if we took the wrong one, our lives would be forever ruined. We've all asked that question at some point. How can I know the will of God for my life. Now, if there's one Bible character I believe that epitomized this struggle, it was this man named Gideon. We've been studying his life the past couple of weeks. When he first found him, he was a coward 
But God's been transforming him into a conqueror. And Gideon invented a method of discerning God's will that countless believers have tried down through the ages. It's called laying out a fleece. And we're going to study this famous scene from Gideon's life. And I believe that Gideon was really an heir here in what he was doing. But that God accommodated him and that God helped him through this time of doubt in his life. But I want us to study... Judges 6, verses 36 through 40 today, and I want us to see some practical applications that we can make in our lives as we learn to discern the will of God. Faith, fleece, and following God's will. The first thing that we see this morning as we open this text, number one, Gideon and his wool. Gideon and his wool. Let's read verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. And when he rose early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece, and he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. And then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me, but let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Now Gideon, so far in our study, we have discovered that this man is a mixed bag of fear and faith. And when we first met him earlier on in chapter 6, he's cowering at the bottom of a wine press. He's so frightened by the big bad Midianites who are oppressing the people that he's doing his farming work, his harvesting work down there in that pit. And so at that point, we may have been convinced as we first met him, uh, this guy is not judge material. In fact, Gideon himself thought that. But God called out of him the potential that he saw. God raised him up out of that pit gave him strength, gave him courage. And we've noticed that God has been working in the life of Gideon, especially in the last section that we studied, where this man gained some courage as he went out and he began to tear down the family altars uh, to Baal in his hometown. And so like most of us, Gideon is a man who's been plagued by doubt. A man who's been plagued by fear and insecurity. And as you know, those old ways die hard. But here he is on the hills of a great personal victory, and we find now that Gideon is testing God for a sign. He's laying out his fleece. And as I've studied this passage over the past few days, I I believe that Gideon was really in error in what he was doing here. Uh, This is not the way that you and I would want to adopt for our lives to discern the will of God. And I want to point out for you, Three errors that I see in Gideon's methodology here this morning. And then I want to make some applications later on about how to truly discern God's will. But notice this. Fleece setting is wrong because it places fear over faith. It's wrong because it places fear over faith. The first problem with Gideon is that, listen, he already knew what God's will for him was. Look again at the text. Look what he says in verse 36. If you will save Israel by my hand, watch this, as you have said. Gideon knew what he was supposed to do. 
He understood the will of God in his life. He heard clearly the voice of God in his calling. He already had an ironclad guarantee of victory from God that God was going to save Israel by the might of this one hand and that God was going to deliver them whether they had weapons or not. God was going to fight this battle. So notice this, Gideon's problem was not a lack of knowledge, it was a lack of faith. And he put his fear and his doubt and his insecurity over his faith in this moment. Did you know that one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons why we do not discover the will of God or don't fulfill the word of God and obey the word of God and the will of God is because of fear? Fear is one of the big bullies on the block of life that oftentimes we cow down to. And for many of us, the problem is not that we don't know God's will, but that we allow our fear, our doubt, our insecurity to overrule our ability to trust God. We've heard the message. We've read the Word. We've heard the Holy Spirit speak to us clearly, and yet we're fearful of following through with it. And so we say, God, give me a word. God, give me a sign. God, show me something. And yet, God has already spoken. We give in to fear, don't we? You know what? Many Christians are afraid of saying yes to God's will because they think that if they say yes to God, then somehow they're going to end up with a less than life. They're going to miss out on joy. They're going to miss out on blessing. They're going to miss out on all the fun. Many Christians are under the delusion that if they say yes to God's will, that means for them they're going to end up living in a mud hut on the outskirts of Mongolia, miserable as a missionary. And I'm telling you that there is no negative in the will of God today. I said yes to the will of God many years ago in my life. It wasn't my plan. It was His plan. And His plans were greater for my life than my own plans. I would have wasted my life on something that wouldn't have amounted to eternity. And I'm telling you, there is always blessing, pleasure, joy, peace, and fulfillment in the will of God. Don't you believe the lies of the enemy? Don't you believe the lies that you tell yourself that if I say yes to God's will, I'm going to miss out. I'm here today to tell you, as a minister of the gospel who's been preaching now for almost 15 years, I'm glad I had the wisdom and the wherewithal to say yes to God one day because He changed my life, and I can't imagine my life any different than the way it is right now because when I said yes to God, things begin to line up in my life. I found purpose. I found peace. I found a pathway. He sent me a wife. I got the blessing of a family. I got to lead a church, and I get to get up every week and preach to you the Word of God. Am I glad I said yes to God? Yes, I am today. So flee setting is wrong because it places fear over faith. You know what they told me when I answered the call to preach? Derek, you shouldn't do that. You'll waste your life. Derek, you shouldn't do that. You could make a lot more money out at another job. And that may be true. But you know what? Some of God's greatest blessings don't have dollar signs in front of them. I'm telling you, you can't put a price on seeing seven precious souls come forward at Vacation Bible School to say, I've decided to follow Jesus. You can't put a price tag on drug addicts coming down and praying and say, I want to find freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, you couldn't pay me enough to to see the blessings of God that I see week in and week out as God moves in this church and as God moves among His people. There is blessing in the will of God. We always, though, deal with fear. 
reminds me of that story that I heard about a mama who was cooking dinner. And she needed some ingredients that was down in the family cellar. <laughs> and so she turned to her little six-year-old daughter and she said, Honey, she said, go down in the cellar and, and get mommy a jar of beans so I can cook dinner. And the little girl, she answered back to her mama. She said, No way, mama. She said, It's dark down there and I'm scared. I ain't going down there. And the mama reassured her. She said, Now remember... The Bible says that Jesus is with you wherever you go. You don't have to fear going down there in the dark. So the mama watched the little girl. She went down to the cellar. She opened the door and looked down in that deep cavern of darkness. And then she yelled down there, Hey, Jesus, if you're down there, hand me a jar of beans. <laughs> don't we do that with the will of God? We know where to go. We know the steps that God has charted for us. It may look dark and it may look foreboding. And, and we yell ahead, Hey God, if you're down there, show me a sign. And God says, just trust me. God has never, listen to me, God has never called anyone to a task and then abandoned them by the side of the road. The old saying goes this way, The will of God will never take you to a place where the grace of God cannot provide. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. But in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. That's my life verse. So, flee setting is wrong because it places fear over faith. And then there's another thing here I want you to see. Flee setting is wrong because it makes demands of God. The second problem with Gideon's approach is that he dictates to God how God should lead him. Make the analogy like this. That would be like the sheep turning to the shepherd and say. You know, I really would like to go over there to that pasture and feed for a little while. It would be as absurd as the clay looking up at the potter and say, Will you shape me like this? Will you make me into this kind of vessel? It's absurd because what we try and do when we set out a fleece is say, God, here's the rules. Will you play by my game? And God, will you answer me in this specific way? We turn God into a cosmic bellhop. So in fleecing, we make the rules of the game, and then we ask God to play by our own rules. And by doing this, you know what fleecing does? It's very subtle. But fleecing does this. It shifts responsibility from our decision off of us and on to God. And thus it destroys the need for faith and the responsibility of wise and good decision making. And so we say, well, uh, God's just going to make this decision for me. And we try and shift it over on Him. And too often, you know, we're trying to discover the future. And God's will isn't for us to necessarily know the future. He says, I give you enough light to take the next step. Now trust me. We want a road map for life. And God says, I'm not giving you a road map. It's a relationship. Know me. Know my word. Know my heart. Understand how the working of the Spirit is. And then you'll know which pathway to take. You can't reduce God down to a formula. You can't reduce God down to a little game where you lay out a fleece or play, pray for a sign or ask for God to play by your rules. Now, fleecing has led many well-intentioned people down the wrong path to end up only with egg on their face. How many of you remember Pat Robinson? Well, he ended up founding... Christian Broadcast Network, CBN. But some of you will remember that in 1988, he ran for president of the United States. I know it was a long time ago, but try and clear the cobwebs out of your mind and think back to that. 
He ended up losing the Republican nomination to George Bush Sr., who did win the presidency. But you know what Pat Robertson said? He said that what convinced him to run for office was this. In 1985, there was a hurricane coming up the coast of Virginia. That's where he had his headquarters at. And Robertson asked God to give him a sign. He said, God, will you send the hurricane out to sea? And if God granted this sign, then Pat Robertson said, I'll take that as a sign from God that not only should I run, but that I'll be victorious. He told the media this. He said, my reasoning was, Lord, if I can't move a hurricane, how can I move a nation? When the hurricane was about 40 miles off the coast of Virginia, it suddenly did take a northeast turn, and it drifted harmlessly out into the sea. And Pat Robertson took that as a clear sign from God. He did decide to run for president, but as I told you, he lost. And then he had to explain to all of his followers and the American people how he had misread the will of God in laying out a fleece. telling you, you need to be very, very careful about this because oftentimes you will end up in a mess. And then we see this. Not only does fleece setting make demands of God, and not only does it put our fear over our faith, but notice this, fleece setting is wrong because it doesn't produce certainty. It doesn't help us really. Notice that in this text that Gideon laid out the fleece not once, but twice. Right? The first time Gideon laid out his fleece, the Lord condescended. And the Lord helped him and did exactly what he asked. The wool was wet and the ground was dry. And you think, wow, after that, you got your answer, Gideon. You got the proof that you wanted. But Gideon goes back a second time and asks for a repeat of the miracle. In other words, the sign that he thought would give him certainty didn't really give him any certainty at all. He wasn't any better after the first miracle than he was before because he asked for it a second time. He even understood that he was treading on eggshells with God when he makes the request, Lord, don't be angry with me. The point is this, even though Gideon knew the sign, and he got the sign that he was looking for, it didn't remove all of his doubts. You know why? Because you cannot remove all of doubt, all of uncertainty in this life. There has to be room for faith. And the amazing thing about this passage isn't the miracle. The amazing thing about this passage is the patience of God in dealing with an unbelieving, fearful, doubting servant. And so we see here that that flea setting is wrong because doesn't really produce the certainty that we think it will. Now that's Gideon and his wool. But the second part of this message that I want to talk to you today about is God and his will. God and his will. Now, knowing God's will doesn't have to be stressful. It's not meant to be a a hair-pulling exercise where we study cloud formations and where we lay out a fleece or we play Bible roulette. I think in too many times in the, to the church, we've made discerning God's will a whole lot harder than it needs to be. And so when we talk about God's will, let me break it down for you. There, you need to understand some distinctions in, in God's will. It can be broken down into three categories. It's important that you and I understand this because oftentimes we may ask for things that are outside of our ability or outside of our sphere. 
Now, there's three distinctions in God's will. There's first what I call God's sovereign will. And this refers to God's overall plan for everything that happens in the universe from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And we can understand that that's the script for God's ages as much as it is revealed in the Bible from creation to fall to redemption to the second coming of Christ. It's all laid out in there, Genesis to Revelation. There's nothing that can be done to change the sovereign will of God. God will have His will. God will have His way. We need to get on board with it. That's God's sovereign will. Then there is also another category known as God's moral will. And God's moral will refers to God's holy standard of living as He has spelled out clearly in the Scriptures. So, you have the Ten Commandments. You have the Sermon on the Mount. You have the Epistles, which tell us about daily living in a Christ-like way. These are the moral will of God. The non-negotiables where God has spoken on moral issues. Don't do this. Do that. And we have to obey that or else it's sin. To him who knows what to do and to not do it, to him it is sin, James says. And God doesn't give us those moral wills as a killjoy. He gives them like guardrails on a winding mountain road to protect us from the danger of sin and getting off the path into the ravine and a shipwreck and a wreck of our lives. So there's God's sovereign will, God's moral will. But then we come to this category, and this is the one where everybody wants to know about God's individual will. And that is God's ideal, detailed life plan uniquely designed for each person. And so this is the aspect of God's will that is usually of greatest concern when we come to that crossroads, that life-changing decision moment in life where we file under the heading these kinds of issues. Should I marry this person? Am I called into the ministry? Is it God's will for me to go to that school or to accept that job and move my family across the country? That's what I mean when I say God's individual will. Now that we understand all that, sovereign will, moral will, individual will, with those distinctions in place, there are four ways that we can discern the will of God. We'll go very quickly through these. Notice this, we can know the will of God by the Word of God. Psalm 119.105 says this, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You know, a vast majority of the issues that people struggle with in life, God's already spoken about. In fact, about, I'd say 90% of everything that you are concerned about in your life, God's Word touches on it in some way, some aspect. It's black and white, it's clear, it's easy to understand. The problem is that we don't take time to do our homework. We don't pour ourselves into the Word of God, and when we don't know the Word of God, we're ignorant of the will of God. So what happens in that moment when we don't know God's Word is we end up implementing our will rather than implementing God's Word. So the Bible is clear enough that we've been given a lot of basic principles about life. They're clear. They're easy to understand. They cover lots of different bases in life. And most importantly, we need to remember, listen to me, this is so important, especially young people, God's will will never contradict God's Word. I have heard so many people swear up and down that something was the will of God for them, 
And when you begin to hear their story, it don't add up because it does not align with the Word of God. This is the standard. This is the out-of-bounds line. And we have to have a standard to tether our lives to or else we get off into sinking sand. For example, this happens so many times in relationships. And I hear this all the time, especially from young people. Two people are quote-unquote in love. And when you begin to ask them about the specifics of their life, is the other person you're dating, are they a Christian? Do they love God? Do they read their Bible? Do they have a relationship where they're walking with Jesus every day? And they say, no, but if it wasn't God's will, why would He allow us to fall in love? And you know, God gets a blame for a lot of our bad decisions, doesn't He? And I tell young people a lot of times, there's a whole lot worse things in life than being single. And it's being unequally yoked, and it's being married to the wrong person, and having your house torn apart by the enemy because you made a bad decision to go against the Word of God. Listen to me. God says it. I believe it. That settles it. Now I have to obey it. No questions asked. How simple is that? Adrian Rogers said this years ago. He said, quote, The will of God is what you'd want for your life if you had enough sense to want it. <laughs> That's Adrian Rogers. And then I say this. If we knew all that God knows, we would ask for exactly what He gives. Who's wiser? You or Dr. Phil, or social media, or Oprah, or some Hollywood celebrity trying to tell you what's right and wrong, who to vote for, what's acceptable, uh, what marriage looks like, what love looks like, what sex looks like. Who's more wise, those people made of dust, or the God Almighty who created it all and knows the end from the beginning and everything in between? I'm telling you, God's Word is how we know the will of God. Let me, let me just uh, pick up a soapbox here. This is, I believe, where the church has lost its way in our culture. Because there are so many so-called pastors today. I call them, a lot, a lot of churches, you know what it ends up being? It ends up being a rock show and a TED Talk. An encouraging They don't actually open the Word of God and give counsel from the Word of God. They stroke people's ego and they make them feel good and it's a mile wide and an inch deep and you walk out feeling high and mighty but you don't know anything about the Word of God. You haven't been touched by the Spirit of God. It's all smoke and mirrors. Listen, there's so many churches that have lost their way on this and the reason why God's people don't know His will is because pastors aren't preaching the Word. Amen. Let me tell you, there's some things going on in the church today that is not the will of God. You say, how can you be so bold and audacious to say that? I'm not smart, and I have a little bit of schooling under my belt, but I do know this. I get in that book every single day, and I know what God's Word says. And we've got some spineless, gutless pastors who won't stand up and actually preach that Bible and rely on the power and the authority of God's Word. It is, listen... It is not God's will that we water down His Word and preach a man-centered message to try and stroke egos and increase the budget and get rear ends in seats. That's not God's will. It is not God's will that we adopt the thinking of our culture in order to be relevant, quote-unquote, in order to attract more people, in order to make Jesus more accessible. That is not God's will. 
We do not lower the standard. We keep the standard high, holy, and raised, and we point people to Jesus and say, He's the answer. This book is the way. Let let me listen. It is not God's will that we all of a sudden get woke and change all the definitions that have worked for humanity for the past 6,000 years. All of a sudden, we think we're smarter than God, and we think we can change the definition of sex and gender and marriage and family, and that we're smarter than God, and we think our society is going to work out better because we're more loving and compassionate. I'm telling you, if you take that road, you're signing up for the judgment of God. It is not God's will that we replace the gospel with social justice. And all these other distractions in the world. I'm telling you, if you just preach Jesus and you just preach the Bible, it's going to fix a lot of those problems. It's going to address a lot of those issues. All this other stuff is distractions. It is not God's will that we change what His Word says about sin. That's what the enemy did in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. He changed the definitions on Adam and Eve, and that's why we're in the mess that we're in. And that's why America is in the mess that we're in, because we think that we are smarter than God, and that, oh, this is an ancient book, and that may have worked then, but it don't apply now. Let me tell you something. God's moral law is written into the fabric of the universe. You don't break it, you break yourself upon it. Man, I'll tell you what is God's will. It is God's will that we preach boldly and we lift up the gospel and we lift up Jesus Christ and we be unapologetic about it and we say, yes, I am a Bible believer. Yes, I am a believer in God Almighty. Yes, I'm a conservative. Yes, I believe that the Bible is the inspired, inherent, infallible Word of God. It influences everything that I think, say, and do. And if you don't like it, that's okay because I don't have to answer for you for my life. I've got to stand before God one day and I want to hear Him say, well done, good and faithful servant. It is God's will for men to step up and to be the spiritual leaders in their families and in their homes. It is God's will that the church be a worshiping church and that we honor Christ with our offerings and with our singing and with our preaching and with our praying and with our gathering. It is God's will that the church be vocal. They are saying today that the church just needs to sit down, shut up, stay here on the religious corner. I'm telling you, if the church makes that, uh, that approach, if the church adopts that, there won't be an America left. There won't be the freedom to assemble and worship. If the church does what the culture wants, you can say sayonara to the church. The church needs to be woke, vocal. That's God's will. Not woke, vocal. Biblical. Unapologetic. Loving, compassionate. It is God's will for people to pray for revival, to evangelize the lost, to stand up to our culture, to stand up to our wayward government and say, thus says the Word of God, you're out of bounds like that. Just as Nathan stuck his bony finger out in front of David and said, Thou art the man, we have to stand in front of our culture and say, You're signing up for some heartache and some judgment from God and point people to the cross. You see, we can know the will of God by the Word of God. Secondly, we can know the will of God by the people of God. Listen to what Proverbs 11 and 14 says. 
where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. You know, one of the greatest gifts that God gives us is wise people, wise saints, men and women of God, who've walked down the pathway of life, who've been where we're getting ready to go, and who have learned some lessons through the school of hard knocks and can give us sage advice. I'm telling you, some of the most godly, some of the most wise people that have spoken into my life didn't have a million dollars in the bank account. They weren't on Forbes magazine or Time magazine. They weren't celebrities. They weren't well-known. But you know what? They knew the Word of God. And when I was in a time of need and I needed some help, they gave me godly counsel. That's the kind of people that I want to be around. People in whom dwells the Spirit of God and can speak into life's issues. I can remember when I, early on in my ministry, even before I came to Liberty, I was looking to start at a church as a youth pastor. And I went in, I met the students. I even preached a few trial messages. It, everything looked promising about this situation. But there was one thing in this church that bothered me. When I asked the pastor about why the previous youth pastor left, he was never straight with me. He always dodged it. He never gave me a straight answer. And that really irked me. Because I think that's a valid question. Why did the previous youth pastor leave? What am I stepping into? I want to know, is it a mess or did he leave on good terms? Well, I remember telling a dear friend about this. And you know what he said? He gave me some great advice. I was about 22 years old. I was a greenhorn. He said this. He said, if this pastor isn't going to be transparent and upfront with you, how can you really trust him? And my friend was right. And even though it was tough, I turned it down. I said, no, I'm not going. Because I can't trust this guy. A few months later, the word got out. You know what happened in that church? The reason why the previous youth pastor left is because the main pastor was caught embezzling money. And the youth pastor knew about it, and he left because he saw it. And I praise God for that wise counselor in my life who saved me from some danger, saved me from some heartache in my life. So you can know the will of God by the people of God, by the word of God. You can know the will of God by the peace of God. By the peace of God. Listen to what Paul wrote about this subject, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. He said, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be, known to, be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Did you see that key phrase? The peace of God will guard your hearts. Another way that we can find confirmation of God's will is that He will give us a peace as a byproduct of turning the situation over to Him. Now, I wouldn't say that a quote-unquote peaceful, easy, easy feeling is the main criteria for determining God's will. I mean, look at Jesus. He was doing the Father's will and it led Him to Calvary. So He didn't have real peace about that. I can guarantee you going and dying... So peace is not always the number one thing that we should put on top of our list. But oftentimes, making that, that decision, that grueling decision, is that if we've obeyed God's word and we've sought godly counsel, then oftentimes God will supply a peace that passes all understanding. I love the story that David Jeremiah tells in one of his books. He tells a story of, about burning the midnight oil one night he was young in the ministry he had come to a particular crossroads in his life and he had to make a big time decision 
And in the wee hours of, his mor- of the morning, he was just searching God's Word, not playing Bible roulette like the guy in the beginning. But he opened up his Bible, and his eyes were caught by Psalm 121. Here's what Psalm 121, verse 4 said. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. You know what David Jeremiah wrote? He said, that verse began to speak, and I felt a sense of calm and what was needed to become clear-minded. And the Spirit of the Lord said to me, Jeremiah, there's no need for both of us to stay up all night. I've got the night shift. You get some sleep. Don't we need to do that sometimes in our lives? Stop worrying, stop fretting. Turn it over to God and get some rest. You can make some of the worst decisions in your life when you're tired, when you're exhausted, and when you're not listening for the will of God. Last way that we can know the will of God, by the Word of God, by the people of God, by the peace of God, and then lastly, by the Spirit of God. Paul writes this in Romans 8, verse 14, For as many are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Notice the phrase, led by the Spirit. Galatians 5.25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit can speak to our innermost being and give us clear promptings of what the Lord would want us to do. You know, you'll be going about your routine, and the Holy Spirit will speak to you in a moment. Talk to this person. Pray this prayer. Don't go left, go right. And those who have ears to hear and those who are sensitive to the moving of the Holy Spirit, you've had this happen in your life. God will just interrupt you in the middle of the day and the Holy Spirit will give you a prompting. And in that moment, if you're sensitive, you obey. And if you don't, you go away like a whipped dog, don't you? Two things I have learned about obeying the direction of the Holy Spirit. Number one, we don't always have to understand fully to obey immediately. God's not going to give you the 10-year plan, the 5-year plan, the 1-year plan. He just says, in the moment, obey me. Give, pray, witness, walk. It's very clear, and God always whispers. And then number two, I've noticed this about walking with the Spirit of God. Sometimes we won't receive understanding until after we've obeyed. You obey first, and then afterward you say, Oh, that's why you sent me down that road. Oh, that's why you asked me to speak to that person. Oh, that's why you asked me to give that money. That's why you led me the way that you did, Lord. He gives you the vision and the clarity in hindsight. And when you're walking in the Spirit, you don't have to find the will of God. The will of God will find you. Let me close with this. Stephen Grillett was a Quaker preacher who came to America. He came to the United States in 1769. He was actually a missionary to this country, and I think if we continue to go down the pathway that we're going, they're going to need to send more missionaries to America. But in 1799, this man named Stephen Grellett traveled from Philadelphia down to North Carolina. He was with a co-preacher named John Hall. They were coming down here to evangelize the colonies. And one of the most colorful stories from his ministry came on his return journey as he was coming back from North Carolina, going up north. He was in Pennsylvania. He passed through a camp of lumberjacks. He heard that these men were notorious for their drunkenness and for their debauchery, and yet, on the road, he felt as if the Holy Spirit impressed upon him to get off the main road, 
go and visit this camp and preach to these men. But when Stephen Grelick got to the camp, it was completely empty. I mean, it was dead as a doornail. The men apparently had moved further into the forest to do the day's work. And so there he was, Stephen Grillet, a story to tell, a message to preach, a gospel to proclaim, and nobody there to hear it. And he thought, had I misheard the will of God? Did the Holy Spirit lead me down this path or, or, or what? Did I, did I hear an error? And so he thought to himself, well, I've come this far. I may as well preach what I had planned to preach, whether there's anybody here or not. Now, imagine how foolish this must have looked. He lifted his voice. He said, Lord, I don't understand why you brought me out here, but I'm going to preach. And so Stephen Grillet stood up in the middle of this empty camp and preached his message, preached the gospel, packed up, went back to Europe. Several years later, Stephen Grillet was walking across the London Bridge, and he was accosted by a stranger. He stopped him. He said, hey, 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 you're, you're that preacher. You're that man. And Stephen Grillett said, Sir, I don't know who you are. Never met you in my life. The man said, Oh, but I know who you are. And I recognize your voice. He said, You see, five or six years ago, I was a lumberjack in Pennsylvania. I was working in a camp. He said, I had gone out into the forest to work with the men, and I had forgotten my axe. He said, I walked back into the camp, and as I got closer, I heard a voice. A thundering voice, a powerful voice. He said, and as I snuck into the camp, I saw a man, it was you, standing on a stump preaching to emptiness. You didn't see me, he said, because I was hiding. He said, but I went into the camp and I just sat down behind where I was and I listened to your whole message. And he said, when you left, I left. But I want you to know that I responded to the gospel that day. You didn't know it, but thank you for being obedient to the Lord. That preacher, he got convicted of his sin. He got a hold of his Bible, and he got saved. Friends, I don't know what the future holds, and I don't need to know it all because I know the one who holds the future. And there's no downside to obeying the Spirit of God. God, give us ears to hear. God, give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to lay on the altar and say, Lord, not my will, but thy will. We want to reduce God to a road map. He wants a relationship. We want to reduce God down to a fleece. He says faith. Give me three steps so that I can know what to do. But God says this. Know my heart. Spend time with me. Put me first in every area. Listen to my voice. Follow my spirit. And when you do that, Romans 8, 28 gets written over your life. All things work together for good. You say, preacher, how do I know the will of God today? The way to the will of God tomorrow is to start obeying the will of God today. You obey what God has asked you to do right now. And He'll give you enough light to take the next step tomorrow. And you know what God's will is? The Bible's very clear, 1 Timothy 2. It is good and pleasing in the sight of our God and Savior that all men come into a knowledge of the truth and be saved. That's base number one. Turn your heart and life over to Christ. That's His will. That you submit to Him. That you understand that He's the Savior. He's the Redeemer. That He died and rose again for you and for me. And that when we surrender our lives to Him, then we can know blessing and peace, joy and love, and all the 
great benefits and gifts that come with the Christian life. 